Last week in John's Gospel, we heard about the kind of believers Jesus doesn't believe in. John told us many people saw the signs Jesus was performing and believed in his name. But before we had time to get excited about that, John immediately went on to say, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Literally, he would not believe in them. And we find out why. These are people whose belief in Jesus rests on whether or not he passes their evaluation. They have essentially put themselves in the position of being the judges of Jesus. And even though their assessment of him is positive at this point, their belief is not belief that can be trusted. And as Jesus talked with one of these believers he doesn't believe in, a man called Nicodemus, Jesus said to him, what you need, Nicodemus, is to be born again. You do not enter the kingdom of God by giving God's Messiah a pass mark. You enter the kingdom of God when God himself does a work of supernatural renewal in you, making you fit for his kingdom. That's where we left it last week. And by leaving it there, we also left a major question unanswered. And the question is, what are we supposed to do about all this? If we only get into the kingdom by God's work, are we just supposed to wait around, hoping God will zap us with this new birth at some point? If what we need is to be born again from above, are we supposed to be passive and just hope it happens to us one day? Well, the answer is no, we are not called to be passive. God is looking for a response from us. And we'll see later whether we realize it or not, we all are responding to Jesus in one way or another. But first, let's turn back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where Jesus tells him about extreme need and amazing love. We're going to pick up in John chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll read through to verse 21. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1065, or in the larger print Bibles, 1650. John chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is God's word. We saw last time that Nicodemus wasn't exactly disrespectful to Jesus, but he was a wee bit condescending. He said, Rabbi, we know some things about you. We have come to some conclusions about you. Nicodemus spoke like he was the representative of some highly qualified group of assessors. We are pleased to report, Jesus, that you're scoring quite highly in our appraisal of you. And yet, Nicodemus has already been shown to be not as smart as he thought himself to be. He is a teacher of the Old Testament. But when Jesus spoke about the new birth promised in the Old Testament, Nicodemus didn't get it. Or at least he didn't seem persuaded by what Jesus said. He wasn't ready to accept what Jesus said. His response was, how can this be? And in verses 11 to 13, Jesus continues to show that even though Nicodemus is Israel's teacher, even though he's a respected leading figure in his society, what Nicodemus needs to do is to see how high above him Jesus is. Nicodemus needs to see that his own knowledge and expertise is woefully limited, terribly inadequate. Nicodemus needs to see he is simply out of his league when it comes to being the judge of Jesus. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he said, we know some things about you, Jesus. And commentators have pointed out that here, Jesus is teasing Nicodemus a bit when he says in verse 11, well, we know a few things as well, Nicodemus. In fact, we have first-hand knowledge about plenty of things you have no idea about. Look again at verse 11. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? The new birth is an earthly thing. Yes, it is from above, but it happens on earth. Jesus said its effects can be seen on earth. It changes people in a noticeable way. And as Jesus has pointed out, that new birth was promised in the Old Testament. It has been made known on earth. It's an earthly thing. And yet Nicodemus is not accepting what Jesus says about it. He's not receiving Jesus' word on it. And so Jesus says, if you won't accept my word about that earthly thing, how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
heavenly things being not only details about heaven, but also the plans and purposes of God, the intentions of heaven. How are you going to grasp those things, Nicodemus, if you don't even see your need to be born again? If you won't even acknowledge that need? So Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to admit he's not as smart and superior as he thought he was. And Jesus presents himself now as the one uniquely qualified to speak about heavenly things. In verse 13, Jesus says, I'm the one who came from heaven. He refers to himself in verse 13 as the son of man. That's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And back in chapter 1, we noticed that's picking up the Old Testament book of Daniel, which describes a son of man, so a human, yet a human who has all of God's authority and power. A God-man. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 7. That's the origin of this son of man language. And Jesus claimed to be that God-man described in the Old Testament. So then, believing in Jesus is not about giving him marks out of 10 on some scale of evaluation that we've come up with. Believing in Jesus involves accepting the truth that he is God. When he speaks of heavenly things, Jesus has perfect first-hand knowledge of what he's talking about. And so when we truly believe in Jesus, we move from evaluating him to bowing under his sovereign, divine authority. And now having presented his own unbeatable credentials, now Jesus shows us the way to be born again from above. That was the question we were left with last week. If we only get into the kingdom of God by God's work, if what we need is to be born again from above, what are we supposed to do about it? If the kind of belief in Jesus we've seen from Nicodemus so far, if that was inadequate belief, what does true belief look like? Help us, please. Well, the answer is, True belief in Jesus is desperate reliance on him. True belief comes not from our ability to judge Jesus. It comes from a recognition of our extreme need for Jesus. Look at the illustration Jesus uses to show what it means to believe in him. In verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The incident Jesus is referring to only takes up a few verses in the Old Testament. And we read it earlier in Numbers chapter 21. As they travel through the wilderness, the Israelites rebel against God. They claim he isn't good. They claim that his intentions to them are evil and that his gifts to them are miserable. And the rebellion of the people leads to death. God sends judgment on the rebels in the form of venomous snakes, 
Those who are bitten by the snakes die. But in his mercy, God also provides a way of salvation. He has Moses make a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. God's promise is that anyone who simply looks to the snake will live. From wherever they're lying, whatever desperate state of death they're in, look to the pole and you'll live. Does that seem to you like an odd arrangement? Maybe it does. But the fact is, it is completely irrelevant whether you or I think it's odd. It is irrelevant whether the Israelites in the wilderness thought it was odd. The reality was they were dying of poison. Their need was extreme. And looking to that snake on the pole was their only way to live. It was heaven's solution to their desperate need. The Israelites are in an utterly extreme situation. They could not save themselves. They were certainly not in a position to pass judgment on heaven's plan of salvation for them. They were not in a position to query it or suggest alternatives. Their only hope was to look up in desperate reliance on that bronze snake on the pole. Their only hope was to take God at his word when he promised to save those who looked to it. And Numbers is careful to report for us those who did look to the snake did live. So now going back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, in answer to the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus and how do we receive new birth from above? In answer to that, Jesus says, you do what the Israelites in the wilderness did. You recognize your utterly desperate situation, that God's judgment is on you because of your rebellion against him, and you look up. You look up not with self-confidence, but with desperate reliance. You look to the one lifted on the pole, trusting God's promise to save those who look. Except this time, the pole you're looking to for salvation doesn't have a bronze snake on it. It has the Son of Man. The God-Man who came from heaven. And Jesus is looking ahead here to his crucifixion when he will be lifted up on a wooden cross. So do you see why we're saying true belief in Jesus is desperate reliance on him? We're saying that because Jesus chose an incident of desperation to explain what true belief is like. And notice something else about this. In the incident Jesus chose... The figure on the pole was ugly. A snake is not an attractive savior. We would not choose to be saved by a snake. And the Bible emphasizes when Jesus hung on a cross, 
He was not an attractive savior. His body was naked, bloodied, and broken. There was no coolness factor in looking to him for salvation. In fact, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul admits the crucified Savior is a stumbling block to many people. You're asking me to believe in this? To trust in this? Paul says the idea of relying on him is offensive to many. To others, it's just foolishness. How silly. People might be interested in a Savior who does powerful signs, an impressive Savior, but a Savior who dies in disgrace, on a cross. Only a desperate man or woman would look to such an unglamorous Savior. Only a man or woman who knew and understood their desperate need. Only a man or woman who had dropped all claims to be able to save themselves. And who'd given up thinking they could decide how God should save them. Only men and women like that would look with desperate reliance to Jesus the crucified. Are you ready to believe in Jesus like that? To give up your own claims to be worthy of God's salvation? To give up your own bright ideas about how God's salvation ought to work? Are you ready to let all of that go? And look to the crucified Savior as your only hope? That's what it means to believe in Him. That's how salvation comes. That's how new birth from above comes. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. That's how you receive eternal life. Those gifts come to desperate believers, not to self-confident, self-satisfied ones. So this mention of Jesus being lifted up on the cross is key to understanding God's plan of salvation. It's key to something else as well. It's key to understanding the love of God. The next verses tell us the measure of God's love is the greatness of the gift he gave and the world he gave it to. Verse 16 may be the most well-known verse in the whole Bible, and with good reason. Look at it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Back in the introduction to John's gospel, we were told the Son of God has made the Father known. And now we realize the Son has made the greatness of the Father's love known. 
Look how verse 16 begins. For God so loved the world. That's referring to the intensity of his love. He loved so much. Well, how much did he love? How great was his love? It was so great, he gave his one and only son. The son he'd been in the closest relationship with for all of eternity. The son who had rested close to his heart for all eternity. How did the father give the son? Well, he gave him to be born as a man. But it goes way beyond that. We've just seen that he gave him to be crucified on a cross. And notice back in verse 14 how Jesus said he must be lifted up. His death was not a failure in heaven's plan. It was the plan. The intensity of God's love for the world caused him to give his precious son to a shameful death. And as we've just seen, the father didn't give the son because he wasn't very attached to the son and he could spare the son. No, we've seen there is nothing more precious to the father than his son. And so in giving the son, it was as if the father tore out his own heart. And for what did the father do this? What did he love so much that he gave his infinitely precious son? The world. That's what God loved with such shocking intensity. And so we might think, well, then the world must be very, very good. If God loves it so much. But it's not. We know it's not. We know this is a world in rebellion against God. We know Adam and Eve weren't the only rebels. We know those Israelites in the wilderness weren't a strange exception to the rule. We're all compromised in this. We're all tainted in this. We all want to rule. Even respected religious people like Nicodemus want to be in the driving seat. They approach Jesus like he's lucky to have their vote. Now, of course, there is beauty and brightness in the world. There's lots of it. But as far as relationship with God is concerned, this is a world where darkness reigns. So Jesus did not come to a deserving world or even to a neutral world. He came to a world that deserves to perish eternally. We're going to hear shortly that the world already stands under God's condemnation for its rebellion. And so as someone has pointed out, God's love for the world is impressive, not because the world is so brilliant, 
Not even because the world is so big. God's love is impressive because the world is so bad. The measure of God's love is the greatness of the gift he gave and the world he gave it to. His beloved son for the sake of a wicked world. That is amazing love. That is love divine. All other loves excelling. And so if we are Christians and we have ceased to be amazed by it, let's come back this morning and let ourselves be amazed all over again. Because this love has given us eternal life. And if you are not yet a Christian, you have just been shown God's love. And now, here is the ultimate question. What do you love? Darkness or light? In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites were already dying of poison when the snake was lifted up on the pole. And as we've seen, Jesus came to be lifted up on a pole, not because the world was healthy in terms of its standing with God, or even neutral in terms of its standing with God. Jesus came to be lifted up because the world was condemned. It was under a sentence of death. It was in line for destruction. And so verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And we already know the kind of belief we're talking about here. We're talking about desperate reliance on Jesus. The same kind of reliance those poisoned Israelites had when they looked to the snake on the pole. Why would anyone not believe in Jesus like that? Since our situation is so dire, since we're under God's condemnation along with the rest of this world, why would anyone refuse this loving gift of salvation? Well, look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We know from the introduction to this book, saying light has come into the world is another way of saying Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world. Why would anyone reject this light? Why would anyone push the self-destruct button by refusing to look to Jesus in desperate reliance? Well, the answer here is they refuse to look to Jesus simply because they love darkness. And here, darkness means life apart from Jesus. Why would anyone love darkness? The reason is living in darkness gives a cover for our evil deeds. 
pride and greed and selfishness are not just tolerated in this dark world, they're able to thrive. In the darkness of this world, we can get on with trying to be God of our own life. In fact, we're encouraged to do that by this world. But to come into the light through desperate reliance on Jesus, well, to do that, we have to be willing to have the evil of our sin, the evil in our lives exposed. We have to be willing to be humbled. We have to be willing to be revealed as guilty rebels who have no hope apart from Jesus. Living by the truth starts with accepting the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. And it means being willing to let go of what we do in the darkness. And for many people, that exposure is just too high a price. They love the darkness too much. They love the stuff they get away with in the darkness too much. Genesis chapter 3 tells us when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, in the aftermath of that rebellion, they didn't run to God for mercy and forgiveness. They hid from him. As daft as it was for them to do that. They hid because they didn't want their sinfulness to be exposed before God. What about you? Do you love being left to die in the poison of your sin? Do you love that more than you love the Savior who can deliver you from the poison? Of course, that sounds like a silly way to put it. Who would be so irrational and so absurd as that? But that is what we're doing if we refuse to turn to Jesus. We are choosing the sin that's killing us over the Savior who will heal us. And give us new birth from above. So what do you love? Darkness? Or light? The answer to that question will be seen in what you do with Jesus. So as we close, let's take a moment to be quiet. to respond personally to what we've been thinking about and hearing from Jesus. If you're not a Christian, please take this time to ask yourself honestly, what is it you love most? And then consider honestly what your love is going to lead to. Eternal death in darkness or eternal life in the light. And if you are a Christian, take a moment to look back at verse 16 and focus on that word, so. There's a lifetime of amazement for us in the truth that God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son. Whatever disappointments you face in life as a Christian, whatever you lose in life, you can rest in this love. Love that gave the very best it had for your salvation. So let's respond quietly and personally for a moment, and then we'll respond together in song. Let's join together as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. So oh. 
direct your hearts into God's love. Amen.
Who's with?